This episode of Cape Up is sponsored by MeUndies. Check out MeUndies.com and find the best pair of underwear in the world. Get 20% off the first pair at MeUndies.com slash Cape Up. Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. Stacey Abrams used to be the minority leader of the Georgia State House, but she resigned that post in her seat to run for governor of the Peach State in 2018. But that's not why I had to have her on the podcast. Abrams has a message for the Democratic Party and the electorate that needs to be heard, including this gem. Politicians are like 15-year-old girls. We respond to money, peer pressure, and attention. So now that she has yours, listen to the rest of our conversation right now. Stacey Abrams, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Okay, so when we met, I think I made a mistake that apparently is common. I think I called you Stacey Adams. You did? I did call you Stacey Adams. How how annoying is that? It is a very popular shoe brand in the South, and so I figure if I try to correct people when I can because if they look for Stacey Adams on the ballot, they will not find me on the ballot. They may find someone in their footwear, but not on the ballot. So you are a member of the Georgia State House? Recently, yes. Recently, yes. Wait, you're not in the Georgia House anymore? I resigned because they need to call a special election, and I wanted to make sure they called it during the mayor's race. Ah, but you are running for governor. I am running for governor of Uh, Georgia. uh, the, The great state of Georgia won why? <laughs> Why run for governor? Because there are too many communities that are being left out and left behind. Georgia's doing extraordinarily well. We're the eighth largest state in the nation. We have a vibrant economy in many places. But there are too many people who don't have access to that prosperity. More than that, we are a very fast-changing state. Demographically, Georgia today is 53% white, non-Hispanic, 47% people of color. That is dramatically different than even a decade ago. We have to harness that diversity because as we head into 2020, into the census, into redistricting, as we head into the late 20s, when Georgia becomes a majority-minority state, we have to be prepared to lead everyone. And I think I'm the person best suited for that job. You were, when you were in the the Georgia State House, you were the House Minority Leader. I was. You've seen a lot. You've done a lot. Um, as a member of the Georgia legislature, how did that inform your decision to run? Because we're still talking, even the demographic stars have not aligned just yet, as you just explained. But what did you see in your experience as a state legislator that said to you, this is a, this is a race that I'm going to run? So I'm going to push back on the demographic stars. Because we keep assuming that the demographic stars mean that you have to have a majority community of color to win an election in the Deep South. That is a mischaracterization. We win by pulling together a coalition, a coalition of people of color, of whites who are typically progressive, and white people who feel like they've been left behind by their party. That's the coalition that wins. The tipping point is that we now have a sufficient number of people of color to tip the balance, and I think this is the year to do so. But it is always going to be about coalition building. It is never going to be that one community alone makes the decision. Mm -hmm. That said, as minority leader, my job was to fight Republican positions that I thought were harmful to our state, but also to work with them when we could do things together to improve the state, like transportation. I'm running because I 
believe now is the time, um, but also because the, the issues and the stakes are so high. You've got dreamers who are about to be kicked out of our country. We have this terrible conversation about whether people deserve health care. My job as the minority leader was, uh, as I like to say, minority leader is Latin for lose well. So <laughs> my job was to figure out how do you navigate against the odds to still get good things done. When I'm elected as governor in 2018, it is unlikely that Democrats will take the House or the Senate. But the job that I've done as minority leader has taught me how to navigate and get good things done even when you don't have total control. So, um, you know, when I mentioned um, in our morning meeting that, you know, I was doing this podcast interview with Stacey Abrams, um, you know, she's running for governor of Georgia. One person in the meeting said, but she's not going to win. Of course. But here's the thing. People think I'm not going to win because they're still remembering the Georgia of Gone with the Wind or maybe, you know, they're conflating it with Selma. They still think of Georgia as a very different place. Between 2000 and 2010, Georgia had an influx of 1.5 million people, 80% of whom were people of color. The composition of Georgia looks different, but so does the education of Georgia. A lot of those returning, a lot of the folks who moved to Georgia were reverse migration families, people whose families moved north during the Great Migration but came back south as their children. They came with education. They came with access. They came looking for opportunity. We have one of the fastest-growing immigrant populations in the, in the nation, Latino, Korean, Indian, Chinese, and African diaspora. And so the reality is the Georgia that people think they know is not the Georgia that is. But the problem is my party in particular, which tends to be the party that builds those coalitions, has not done the work of building the coalition of people of color. We have traditionally left them out of the politics, treated them as base voters, meaning they'll show up if we have an election, and not as persuasion voters who need to have the same degree of intensity and intentionality in our campaigning as we give to majority voters, to white voters. You know, when we were on the, I moderated a panel uh, that you were on for the Congressional Black Caucus week here in Washington, and you, may, you raised this, this very point about how the Democratic Party basically takes this vote for granted and that it has to start getting out there and going and asking for the vote which I think a lot of people think, well, wait, why do we have to ask for, the, ask for the vote? Shouldn't they just naturally come on out? Of course not. We don't believe anyone will naturally come out. That's why we run campaigns. The reason we <laughs> invest in campaigning is because we know it's a crapshoot every time. Who's going to vote? Why will they vote? What will they vote for? The issue is how much do we value the votes that we're going after? And the challenge I've seen in the party, especially in the South, is that we do not place the same premium on voters of color that we do on white voters. And until we place the same premium and treat them as equally valuable votes, we will not win elections where we could. We lose elections in Georgia by 200,000 votes in a state of 10 million people. Georgia Democrats sometimes leave as many as a million votes on the table, not because they won't vote, but because we don't ask. In, in political parlance, there's a conversation about persuasion. And that's typically persuasion of ideology. I'm going to try to convince you, persuade you to vote for me by telling you things that we, I think you want to hear about what I believe. And that's why you find a lot of Democrats running sort of to the center or to the right when they are. I mean, if you're a centrist, be a centrist. But you find some who run progressive in a primary and then conservative in the general, and that's called persuasion. 
My issue is that we also have to understand that there's a persuasion of behavior conversation we have to have. Hmm. That people who believe what we believe have not been persuaded that voting actually will do anything about it. If you've lived in intergenerational poverty in the Deep South, you've seen presidents, you've seen governors, you've seen city council members come and go and your life never changes. If you are a person who has been mired in a low-paying job, you may not be in poverty, but you've never been able to see the middle class except on television. We have to be willing to persuade people that casting a vote, that taking off time from that second job you have, possibly skipping a shift to stand in line for an hour, that that's going to lead to change for you. That's a persuasion of behavior, not a persuasion of ideology. They agree with us. They just don't believe we'll do anything about it. So then how do you, so then how do you get them to break out and like, actually show up at the poll and, and vote? And, th- and what you're saying is not j- just specific to your own campaign. This is, this is a message that the Democratic Party nationwide in every county needs to hear. Absolutely. We're having this false argument about whether it's the white working class or people of color, whether it's identity politics or whether we need to have a centrist uh, policy. No. We need people to believe that politicians will do our jobs and they need to understand what that job is. That's the baseline issue. People vote in presidential elections because we've spent billions of dollars telling them what a president does. Most people have no idea what a state legislator does. They vaguely understand what a governor can do. They have no clue what the soil conservation district director does. (laughs) We have to be as invested in educating people about what the job is so people can then hold us accountable for getting the job done. What we find instead is a, a, a disappointment, a tacit disappointment every single time because they didn't know whose job it was. And so when things don't change, they don't know who to blame. So they blame everyone. My goal is to talk about the issues that matter in Georgia to talk about them in a resonant way, to talk about them everywhere. I don't pick, cherry pick who I'm going to say it to. I sound the same in the northwestern part of Georgia, which is predominantly white, the southwestern part of Georgia, which is predominantly black, Atlanta, which is really wealthy, some parts of Georgia, which are very poor. I'm going to have the same conversation everywhere, but my conversation always begins with how can I help you? And the way I can help you is by making sure you understand what I should be expected to do when I get this job. Now, one of the things you said um, that was hilarious, and I'd never heard it put this way, but it's so true. Talk about what you you said. Being a politician is like being a 15-year-old girl. (laughs) I I use 15-year-old girls because I was one. (laughs) And what I say is, look, politicians are like 15-year-old girls. We respond to money, peer pressure, and attention. If you want to get a politician to do anything, (laughs) those are the levers. And for most people, we don't have a lot of money. Your peer pressure has to come from within your own community. So it's usually politicians being held accountable by other politicians. We see this playing out right now uh, in the ACA debate. And then attention. That's the police. That's where resistance has come in. The fact that we keep changing the minds of people, we keep stopping these draconian changes from happening in Washington, it's all about the fact that people are paying attention and we're telling politicians we're paying attention. That's how you make change happen. Money, peer pressure, or attention. And if you don't have any money, you're not an elected official, attention is what you got and you need to use it.
This episode of Cape Up is sponsored by MeUndies. You want to look good in your underwear and feel comfortable, right? But the perfect balance is hard to find. Don't sacrifice style or comfort. Check out MeUndies. MeUndies are made from a sustainable source, natural soft fabric that is three times softer than cotton. That's what makes them the world's most comfortable underwear. Try them today. There is no risk. If you don't love your MeUndies, they're free. To get your 20% off, free shipping, and 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com slash CapeUp. That's MeUndies.com slash CapeUp. The other thing I would say, though, is we have more money than we realize. And I'm from Georgia. The George, the John Ossoff race, I think, got— I was going to ask you about the yeah. John Ossoff race. Keep going. So John's race. John got a lot of attention, <laughs> but he got a lot of money. He did not win, but it was not a failure of Democrats. That was a majority Republican district that should not have cost roughly $60 million— because while everyone paid attention to how much money John brought in, the Republicans out, outpaced him. They spent I, I, more. How, how much? Was it like, I believe 33, it's like million? 33 million? I believe it's like 33 million. To Ossoff's 30. 30. And so the reality is we made that race competitive. We made Republicans fight for a seat that they literally had won months before by more than 20 points. Georgia is not the 6th district. The 6th district is uh, 75% white, one of the wealthiest districts in the state, one of the better educated districts in the nation, that community was not going to be persuaded that voting for Karen Handel was the equivalent of voting for Trump. They don't see themselves as Trump Republicans. They see themselves as Handel Republicans, as Johnny Isaacson Republicans. There's an erudition that allows you to disassociate yourself from Donald Trump in that space. And it's true across the country. But what John was able to pull off was he built a coalition of voters who had never voted in a midterm election, in a special election. And he built a presidential level attention during an off-year election. That's an extraordinary achievement. And people forget it felt like forever, but it was, it was a very short period of time that he was actually in the race. What do you say to Democrats who, and I'm talking about na- nationwide mm-hmm. Democrats, who lost their minds because John Ossoff didn't win. He didn't win that runoff. Part of the challenge was we created a false set of expectations. He was running in a special election as a first-time candidate in a very Republican district. And the problem is we decided that that was the holy grail, but it was also the predictor of all things from then on. And that's the problem. John's race was a fantastic race because it helped us. It basically helped Democrats provide catharsis. It gave us a vessel within which to pour our anxiety, our anger, our angst, our disappointment about November. It gave us, he gave us something to focus on. But the problem is you cannot elect a vessel. You have to <laughs> elect candidates. And that's hard work. And John's race was a, an important part of what has happened across the country. But when John lost, across the country, Democrats have flipped Republican seats. We're outpacing Republicans in special elections. There's an enthusiasm that has gone unabated. What John did was give a face and a voice to what is happening nationwide, but it's going to look different wherever we are. But what Democrats cannot do is lose an election and take our marbles and go home. That's what we tend to do. Republicans, you know, they lose a dog catcher's race. They do deep analysis, (laughs) and then they figure out, do we need a better dog? Do we need a better candidate? (laughs) Right. Democrats, we lose the dog catcher's race. We should have gone with the Dalmatian. We should have gone with the Dachshund. (laughs) We have to be willing to do the analysis, but we also have to be persistent. And what I'm most enthusiastic about 
is that even after he lost, there's a group in Georgia called Pave It Blue. It's a group of women who organized themselves. They have not gone home. They are still out there knocking doors, still talking to folks, still enthusiastic about winning elections. We have to use loss as a galvanizing force. It can never be an excuse to sit down ever again. What lessons did you learn um, from the Ossoff race that um, you think are beneficial to you or warning signs? Well, low-dollar donations are real. (laughs) That's a good thing. Um, So it's just figuring out what's the magic combination of words to use. But no, I think in practical terms, John reached out to communities that had typically been ignored by Democrats in midterm elections. He turned them out. And that's an important thing to do. And it took money. It took money to hire the field operatives, to get them on the ground, to get them knocking on doors. Where John had challenges, you have to send people in who are trusted by those communities. And so although he had an extraordinary army of very well-intentioned volunteers, you cannot send someone from Minnesota into, unless they are, into a Loatian community. If you can't speak the language and you don't understand the concerns of that community, campaigns are the wrong time to try to teach yourself about Mm -hmm. another community. Which is not to say that you can't have empathy, but it is difficult to have the conversion that you need to have to get people to start to vote. It's a level of trust. Exactly. And that's my point about persuasion of behavior. And so I think what John realized and what his, his campaign signaled is that we have to be very intentional about who we send in to be our emissaries. How do we do the training to make sure it's done right? How do we make sure we are constantly going places where we're told not to go? Uh, there is a conversation among some of the folks who volunteered for him. They were going into apartment complexes where no one had ever gone. That was a good thing. The problem was you can't go in two weeks before an election, and especially in his election because it was such a short time period, six weeks before an election, and expect to change a lifetime of behavior. And that's why I'm starting my campaign for 2018 in June of 2017, because I've got to go into a lot of those communities where we have never been, and we have to build trust, we have to build rapport, and we have to understand what their concerns are. Uh, we're a complicated people. Humans are complicated, and Americans have taken it to an art form. <laughs> and so we've got to understand what it is people need. We've got some great talking points, but for the minutia and the granularity that policy has to deliver, we have to do asking more than telling. You know, um, a, a lot of the attention now has been focused since the election of, of President Trump uh, among Democrats. Oh, my God, we have to go after the white working class. Um, and, you know, that drives me. I understand where that comes from, but it drives me crazy because it ignores the fact that there's Latino working class and black working class and they didn't vote for him. But. What would you say to those people in the party who are of that mindset that we leave aside, quote unquote, identity politics? We need to go and fo- focus all of our attention right now on winning back the white working class. I, I think, first of all, it's a false construct. We didn't lose the white working class. Democrats lost some white working class folks. I just came from a labor uh, group. There are a lot of white working class men in that room. So we have this false idea that if we got all of these people, then they would be ours. It's never been so. We've never been a monolithic party in that way. Because even when everyone was a Democrat, we weren't all the same kind of Democrat. We just didn't talk about it. (laughs) We were just not Republican. That's not the same as holding the same ethos. 
um, I, I have a, a very colorful shorthand I like to use. Trying to convince what we say when we say white working class, what we mean is try to convince Republicans to become Democrats. That's the that's the shorthand. We call it white working class, but what we mean is that we want to convince these Republicans to come back to the party, meaning they're in somebody else's party now. Ideologically, that is a nonsensical intent, I believe, by and large, because ideology is what you believe and what you hold to be true. My job is not to convince you that your beliefs are wrong. My job is to convince you that the pathway to getting what you need comes through the work I'm willing to do. And so my focus is not on the white working class, not to the exclusion of. It's not saying they don't, they don't deserve good leadership. But I'm not going to change what I believe in order to court your vote. I've never heard a Republican say, we've got to go after the moderate Democrats. <laughs> it doesn't true. happen. Right. They, because they have a core set of beliefs and they are going to run on those beliefs and they're going to say to anyone, if you want the outcomes we promise based on this set of principles, stand with us. If you don't, we're going to beat you. Democrats have to be willing to stand on our own truth consistently. The way I put it is, look, my parents are ministers. It, to me, seems like the equivalent of trying to convince an atheist to become a Catholic. I just need Baptists to go to church. <laughs> I don't need to change the way you believe about things. If you are anti-choice, I am not going to say anything that's going to persuade you that a pro-choice activist is the person who should lead you. If you do not believe in labor unions, if you believe that the right to work for less is the ethos we should have, there's nothing I can say to you to change that. But what I can tell you is that if you stand with me, I will help create good jobs. I will protect reproductive rights because the right of a person to decide how she creates a family protects everybody. So I don't have to change my beliefs to convince you to come to me. But when we, we create a false conversation, when we talk about the white working class, because what Democrats mean is we've got to convince Republicans to come back as opposed to let's get the Democrats we have to come out. What do you say to the, the Democratic National Committee in what they should do for 2018 or 2020? If you had one message, you could sit down with Tom Perez and you had, you had two minutes, what would you tell them to do? Invest in candidates who are running authentic campaigns grounded in the communities that they serve with a clear plan for how they're going to reach them. And if that plan is about being on television, talk to the next candidate. We have to win on the ground. This is a ground war. Airstrikes feel good and they make politicians feel great about themselves to see themselves on television. But Democrats only win when we are on the ground. What we've misremembered about the 2008 campaign, yes, it was technologically brilliant. It was one of the most sophisticated operations ever seen. But the sophistication was a tool for the organizing on the ground. That's why we won. That's why Democrats took the White House. That's why in 2006 we took Congress. Because in those days we were on the ground knocking on doors, talking to voters, telling them a story of who we could be if we worked together and elected the right people. George W. Bush helped a lot. We're not always going to have that, although the current occupant of the White House is doing a great job of giving us some, some you know, clarity. But I would tell Tom Perez, I would tell any candidate running, run an authentic campaign that you will run from beginning to end. If you are already thinking about how you pivot, that's not the right campaign. You have to think about how you stand in your truth, how do you talk to everyone, how do you go everywhere, and how do you do it in a way that is 
respectful of voters, not about your time, but about their time and their values and what they need to hear from you and what they need to know about what you'll do for them. Now, I can't let you go, um, Stacey <laughs> Abrams, Yes. without talking about this thing I just discovered. <laughs> um, I can't. Well, you're just going to have to tell me how on earth did it happen that you write romance novels? I am a romantic suspense novelist. So during my last year of law school, my ex-boyfriend, Derek Williams, who's a brilliant scientist, a chemical physicist. Um, we had a terrible breakup, though. He, um, we'd repaired our relationship a little bit by then. He sent me his dissertation on microzeolite technology, which most humans will never really know that much about. Nope. Well, I wanted to write a novel, and I'd always wanted to write a spy novel. It was my last year of law school. I figured, hey, it's a great time to write a book. <laughs> Wait, you had a whole lot of time. <laughs> it's I, law I, school. I was a non-traditional student. I mean, <laughs> not, <laughs> so, I, so I started out as a spy novel, but found that publishers didn't believe that women read spy novels. And being the daughter of a librarian, I did research. And discovered that if you just made the spies fall in love, you could kill all the same number of people and just call it a romantic suspense novel. <laughs> and that's what I did. And what's your alter? You have an alter ego I name. Do. You don't write under Stacey Abrams. So I write as Selena Montgomery, uh, S E L E N A, Selena Montgomery, because at the same time I published my first novel, Rules of Engagement, I also published uh, my first tax article on the operational dissonance of the unrelated business income tax exemption. And this was at the advent of Google. And so if you Googled my name, if you Googled Stacey Abrams, it would be like, and you saw both my romantic suspense novel and my tax article, it would be like reading Romance by Alan Greenspan. <laughs> it was not going to be a high selling point. So I came up with a pen name. That's, that <laughs> is fantastic. And that is the best way to end this, conversa <laughs> end this conversation. Stacey Abrams, former uh, Georgia State House Minority Leader, current candidate for governor of the great state of Georgia. Thank you so much for being Thank on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This has been a delight. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? with Allison Michaels, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.